I'll invite you to stand with me. Uh, For the sake of time this morning, I'm just going to read the first five verses of Genesis uh, 26 this morning. We stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to, your, to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning, and we pray, God, that it will enlighten our hearts. Will your Holy Spirit help us to draw understanding that we may follow you better? Lord, we also pray this morning for our partners at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. We, we thank you, God, for uh, the work that you are doing there as they day in and day out minister to families who have unexpected pregnancies. We thank you, God, for the lives that are saved through that ministry. We pray, God, for the new partnership that we will have with them, with that team now that is uh, fully formed, who will begin sometime this spring actually meeting with moms and dads who are expecting and in need of relationship, in need of encouragement, and ultimately in need of the gospel. Thank you, God, that we can continue to do that in this way. And then now that as we bring this, these baby bottles filled with money back together, here's what we recognize, that that will go to a great need in our area. So God, would you bless that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Genesis chapter 26 is an interesting chapter in that it is, it moves very, very quickly. It covers numerous events in the life of Isaac and is the only chapter in Genesis that is wholly concerned with the second of the patriarchs. We spent over 10 chapters in, I think, around 12 or 13 chapters in the life of Abraham. And then when we get to the life of Isaac, so much of the attention is on his children. Last week, the birth of Jacob and Esau. Next week, we will return to Jacob and Esau. And they're grown adults at this point. And Isaac is near the end of his life. And then very quickly, the focus turns just to Jacob. So for being one of the three patriarchs, this middle person, Isaac, the son of Abraham, the father of Jacob, we know very little compared to the other two. And what we do see here in Genesis 26 is really a abridged retelling of the life of Abraham. Now, that's not to say that these things didn't happen to Isaac. They surely did. The Bible affirms that these are true events that happened in the life of Isaac. But what we will see as we walk through these events is that in nearly every case, they reflect an event that took place in his father's life. 
And what we will see is that Isaac, in many ways, responded in similar situations in exactly the same way that Abraham did. You know the phrase, right? The apple does not fall far from the tree. Well, that's true here with Abraham and Isaac. It's true in our lives. I can always tell when it's been a little bit of a rough day in our homeschool. When I get home and the first words out of my wife's mouth is, he is so much like you. (laughs) Sorry, dear. It's all I know how to say, right? What do you want me to do about it? (laughs) Sorry. I, I, I didn't always have growing up the, um, uh, the greatest dedication to my scholastic efforts. And uh, while my, older, my oldest son is far smarter than I was at his age, uh, occasionally he demonstrates his dad's proclivity to procrastinate. And it frustrates his mom to no end. And so they're like in so many other circumstances with parents and children, the apple does not fall far from the tree. And we pass on things to our children, both through nature, just the way we are, and through nurture, the things that we've taught them, the things that they've seen from us. We pass on good and bad, blessing and curse, faithfulness and sin. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Isaac. We, you will see in this passage so much of what we have already seen about Abraham And so I want to use this as an opportunity to challenge us about what we are also passing on. What are we communicating with our lives to people who are watching and how will they mirror what we do just as Isaac mirrored what his father Abraham did? First, we see an inherited blessing where the Lord tells Isaac to stay in the land. We already read these verses at the beginning of the sermon. I just want to draw out something from the middle of verse, or from the end of verse two, if you will, for a moment. He says, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land, which I will tell you. That God is now speaking to Abraham, or speaking to Isaac in the same way he did to Abraham. And as we, as we go through these stories, we're going to look back in the life of Abraham and see how these interactions are so similar. And the first goes all the way back to the beginning of Abraham's story. Now, while this doesn't seem like the beginning of Isaac's story, because we've been dealing with Isaac for a few chapters now, he's not been the primary focus. And so here, where now the author of Genesis turns his primary focus to Isaac, we see a very similar statement as we did at the beginning of Abraham's journey. In Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So similar here to what we saw, God, what we see God say to Isaac, dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Now, he wasn't calling Isaac to leave a place like he was Abraham. He was calling Isaac to stay in a place the place that Isaac was born, the place that Abraham had sojourned for so many decades and was promised that, would, that his descendants would inherit. And God says, don't leave it. Don't do ultimately what your father did, walking away from the promised land to go to a place where 
he may find a little more comfort, things a little easier during time of famine. And that's how this whole passage started in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, just as there was in the first account of Abraham. In verse 10 of Genesis 12, now there was a famine in the land. The same exact words. But what does Abraham do in Genesis 12? He went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. But what does God tell Isaac to do? Don't make the same mistake, Isaac. Don't make the same mistake your father made. Now, if you'll remember from Genesis 12, there was a great mistake that that uh, Abraham makes in Egypt. He actually makes this, he commits this sin at least on two occasions. In a moment, we're going to see Isaac following those same footsteps. But here's the Lord at least attempting to preempt that in Isaac's life by saying, don't go in the same path of your father. In Genesis 12, Abraham demonstrates an unwillingness to trust the Lord to provide for him in the land that God had promised. And so he goes to Egypt. And the Lord calls Isaac and says, even though there's a famine, don't leave here. And then the Lord speaks Abraham's blessing to Isaac. Look at verses four and five. I will multiply your offsprings as the stars of the heavens. I will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Time and again in the life of Abraham, we see God speak his blessing, reiterate his blessing, re-explain his blessing to Abraham, but only here. Only here in Genesis 26 does God appear to Isaac and tell him the same thing that he had told his father Abraham. That he was making a promise to him. A, a, a threefold promise, a promise of offspring, right? I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. A promise of land, your offspring. I will give your offspring all of these lands. And a promise of blessing, that in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This mirrors the, ble- the promise and blessing that God had given to Abraham. Time and again, one of the clearest tellings of that is in Genesis 15, verses five and six. And he brought him outside and said, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I went to Genesis 15 because it uses the same metaphor, counting the stars of the heavens. God used multiple metaphors when making his promise in various places in the scriptures to Abraham. But here with Isaac, he borrows just from this one that he had made in Genesis 15, the stars of the heavens, that that was the promise to Abraham who had not yet had a child. Isaac wasn't on the scene yet. He was a mere promise of God. And God called Abraham to believe that he would bless him in this way. And Abraham does in Genesis 15 and it's counted to him as righteousness. Now we're not told the same to be true about Isaac. We're not told what Isaac's faith here is in the promise of God. But the fact that these two promises line up I do believe is intended for us to be drawn to that expression at the end of of, uh, that passage in Genesis 15, that 
he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That now the blessing of God, which was already, we were told uh, in a previous chapter that God was already blessing Isaac. We're going to see God continue to bless Isaac in this chapter, but that, that the blessing of God is now a part of Isaac. It is now passed on from his father to him and he believes it, he trusts it. And he demonstrates this trust by doing what God told him to do. It would have been easy for Isaac to do what his father did, go to Egypt. But he doesn't. He stays. He at least in that command obeys, demonstrating faith and trust in God that he will keep his word by blessing him in the same way that he blessed his father. So this passage begins with an inherited blessing, the blessing of Abraham passed on to Isaac. The middle section transitions though, away from the positive towards the negative. As we saw so often in Abraham's life, he was not perfect. And that should be an encouragement to you and I because we're not perfect either. And so to think that Father Abraham, this great figure, giant of the Old Testament, the first of the patriarchs to receive the promise of God that, that God was beginning to do something new through this family, so often fell into his own temptation to not trust the Lord or to seek to provide his own way in his own time instead of believing God. Well, we see that again with the second generation as well. Not only does Isaac inherit a blessing from his father, but he also inherits temptation and sin. Look with me in verse, verses six uh, through nine, where we see Isaac sins in the same way that his father Abraham did. So Isaac settled in Gerar. So he doesn't go to Egypt. He goes to Gerar where Abimelech was, who we've already seen uh, previously in the life of Abraham. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. This story should seem familiar to us because it is a story that's happened already twice in the life of Abraham. The first in Egypt, where they travel to Egypt and Abraham says, tell them you're my wife. And actually Pharaoh takes her into, takes Sarah, his Isaac's mother into his household. Then later we see it in Genesis, uh, in, in Genesis 20 where Abraham lies to this same man, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, saying, she's my sister. From, we see this in Gen the first two verses of Genesis 20. From Abraham journeyed towards the territory and then Agab and lived between Kadesh and Shur and he sojourned in Gerar, same place. Same, same description of how he's living. He's sojourning there. It's not his home. He's just staying there for a while. And Abraham said to Sarah's wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
Now, the difference is while Pharaoh and Abimelech both took Sarah into their households, that does not happen with Isaac and Rebekah. And I find it interesting in verse 8 of Genesis 26 that it says they had been there a long time. I think the scriptures tell us that they've been there a long time. That's a narrator, that's a narrator note, all right? So that's something that Moses wants us to know about the event that's important to know. That Isaac and Rebekah kept up this ruse for a long time. Long enough for Isaac to have realized these people are not going to kill me. Long enough for Isaac to have realized God is going to protect me. These people were not out to get Isaac, but he had the same fear that his father had. It's, it's as if he inherited the same temptation and proclivity towards self-protection even at the expense of his relationship with his wife. Then something else interesting happens. You see, in both the story with Abraham and Pharaoh and Abimelech, God himself speaks to those men and tells them what they've done. That does not happen in this case. Abimelech figures it out on his own. Now, you gotta imagine he was somewhat suspicious, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? This is the second time this guy's been through this with this family. And so we're told that he's looking out a window. Now, I can't imagine what this would have really looked like. We're just told he's looking out a window, which means that what's taking place is taking place in public, all right? It's for people to see. They've been there a while, they've grown comfortable, but they've still kept up this ruse. And then it says that Isaac was laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, do you remember Isaac's name means laughter, right? And so laughter is laughing with his wife. Now you may ask the question, why in the world does Isaac laughing with his wife draw suspicion? Well, that word laughing can just mean laughing, but we probably ought to provide some kind of undertone there, okay? I think the best way to say this is Isaac was publicly flirting with his wife, all right? Who he's called his sister. And it was at least enough for Abimelech to say, wait a second, I'm on to you. It took him a while, but he figures it out. And he says, she's your wife. He doesn't even ask the question, right? He doesn't go to her and says, hey, hey, this, this seems a little fishy. Is that, is that really your sister? No, no, no. Abimelech knows. And he goes, she is your wife. Why would you say this? And he gives the same excuse as dad did. I was afraid that you were going to kill me. The same lie, the same temptation for self-preservation, the same neglect of spouse that Abraham demonstrated, Isaac demonstrates. And then they're confronted by Abimelech in the same way that Abraham was. Look at verses 10 and 11. Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Think how similar that is to Genesis 20 verse nine. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? Same exact words. And now have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin you have done to me things that ought not be done. You remember Abimelech, while he did not take Rebekah into his household, no one did, the scriptures tell us, he did take Sarah into his household. 
So we see such a similar confrontation. And if you'll remember when we were in Genesis 20, this is, this is a pagan man. Just as Pharaoh was, was a pagan in his confrontation with Abraham over his lie about his wife, so was Abimelech. That God is using this pagan king to confront the recipient of God's promise. Why is that important? It's important for us to recognize just how low these men have fallen. Just how low both Abraham and now the next generation in Isaac have fallen from their trust in God that even a man like Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, would recognize what you have done is terribly wrong. So Isaac, in just this little bit that we get to know about him, sins in such a similar way, based on the same temptations that his father Abraham had sinned. Number three, inherited faith. Now, this is a collection of stories, 12 through 33 moves very rapidly and there's, there's, there's movement both in the story itself, but there's also movement geographically. And so each one of these, at least the first three, take place in a different place, but all kind of related to the same people. But we're going to see Isaac turn the same corner that his father turns. After, after Abraham's confrontation with Abimelech, the, the story turns in Abraham's life towards faith. And that Abraham begins to demonstrate great faith that God is going to provide for his safety and God is going to provide a child and God is going to provide a land and that God's going to do what he had promised that he would do. And that's what these, this compilation of stories here in Genesis 26 show us that in the life of Abraham, in the same way with, with in Abraham, he makes this transition after his confrontation with Abimelech, so does Isaac that Isaac is pulled back towards blessing and faith in the promise of God. Now, what I wanna do is I'm gonna read these and I recognize it's a lot of verses there, 12 through 33. Um, so I'm gonna read them in the parts and explain them as we go, as we're gonna see Isaac trust the Lord to provide for his needs in the face of opposition. First, verses 12 through 16. And Isaac sowed in, the land, in that land, so this is still in the land of the Philistines, this is in Gerar, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. So in this first location, still in Gerar, this place where he had, he had lied about his wife, Rebecca, he's now planted some roots. He's, he doesn't own this land, but he's allowed through, through some means to be able to work the land and he's worked the land and his blessing is far greater than everyone else's. And it's clear to the Philistines that this man is blessed of God. It is clear to them that something is different about him. So much so that we're told in verse 15, they began to kind of work against the, his, his family's interest in filling in some wells with dirt, all right? And two, ultimately the king, Abimelech, comes to him and says, you gotta go away from us. 
Now, in the previous story, it is Isaac who is afraid of Abimelech and his people. But because of the blessing of God, it is now what? Reversed. It is Abimelech and his people that are afraid of Isaac. You see, once Isaac begins to operate in fear, the world now is not sitting in condemnation of Isaac. The world is now sitting in awe of him. Watching as God works and God blesses and God keeps his word to him. So much so that they say, you've got to go away. So the blessing of God on Isaac's life brings opposition. Now, verses 17 through 22. So Isaac departed from there. So he leaves. And encamps in the valley of Gerar and settled there. You may say, well, wait, what's the difference between Gerar and the valley of Gerar? It's, it's not the same place. The va- this would have been outside but it would have still been controlled by the Philistines. So he's still in the Philistines' land, but he's not in the city anymore. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his fathers, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. So he's undoing the work of opposition. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there uh, a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he called the name Sitna and he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called it Rehoboth saying, from now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. So we see this great transition in Isaac. And he goes from lying about who his wife is to fully understanding, at least in part, the blessing of God that relates to the land. And so when Abimelech says leave, he leaves. Now think, he, he's prospered greatly in Gerar, and yet he's still willing to leave. And so he goes out to the valley of Gerar, a place that obviously nobody really wanted very much, except for some herdsmen. And so he settles there and begins anew. Digs out some of the dirt from the well that the Philistines had filled in that Abraham's servants had dug a generation previous to that. And when they hit water, what do they say? Hey, that's our water. Abraham doesn't fight them. (laughs) Abraham, more powerful than them. They've already admitted to him. You've got to get away from us. Abraham doesn't fight them. He moves on, digs another well. And when he hits water there, what do they say? Hey, that's our well too. Isaac doesn't fight them. He just moves on to a third well and finally digs the third well and there's no quarreling over this. And so what does he say? From now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. The continued faith of Isaac that the Lord would provide the land ultimately ends up with Isaac saying that very thing, God has provided this. It doesn't matter that we were kicked out of Gerar. It it doesn't matter that, that they stole this well from us. It doesn't matter that they stole this well from us. God was going to be faithful. This is what we see in this narrative. We see Isaac believing in the faithfulness of God, that he will keep his promise and that the Lord does just that. He makes room for him. Now he moves again. Now we're not told how long these things take, okay? We're, we're told that he was in Gerar for a long time. We're not told how long this takes, but this could have happened over a period of years, even decades. 
He settles there for a while, but then he moves again to a place where his father had also been, Beersheba, verse 23 tells us. And the Lord appeared to him and the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So reiterating the promise that we had seen previously in this same chapter. But he does something here. Look at what he does that's different to his response the previous time. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Now God makes a promise at the beginning of this chapter. Don't go to Egypt. Stay in the land. Trust in me. Have faith in me. And Isaac does half of what God said. He doesn't go to Egypt, but he ultimately doesn't demonstrate trust, falling into the same temptation as sin that his father did. But here in Beersheba, where he settles again and the Lord makes this promise, no longer does Isaac feel the need to lie. No longer does Isaac feel the need to seek his own way. Here he builds an altar. Here he pitches his tent. Here he digs another well. Here he establishes the same roots that his father before him had established. If you'll remember, Beersheba is the southernmost part of the promised land. Again, establishing a boundary from one generation to the next, establishing the boundary that this is the land. The Lord has provided it. So even in the midst of this trial, in the midst of being run from one well, out of one city to, a, to one well, to another, to another, finally the southernmost part, Isaac worships. He worships God just as his father Abraham did in the midst of trial. Abraham is now, or Isaac is now out of the Philistines' territory. It must be that the famine in the land is over. But we still have an encounter left with the Philistines. Look at verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar. So Abimelech is now traveling. Isaac travels to Abimelech at the beginning. Abimelech's traveling to Isaac now with Azutha, Azuath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let, us, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make it a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done and done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessing of the Lord. So we made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servant came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, we have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. The last time the scriptures at least record a conversation between Isaac and Abimelech, it did not go well. It was a pagan king confronting God's chosen over his sin. And now, sometime later, that pagan king recognizes the full blessing of God on Isaac and journeys outside of his land to covenant with him to make a pact. 
You could say the fact that he brings his advisor and his commander of his army. Abimelech recognizes Isaac is growing powerful. And we would be far better friends than enemies. And he even says, we treated you very well, didn't we? And Isaac, you notice, doesn't bring up the fact that they kicked them out of two different, they kicked him out of the city and then kicked them off of two different wells that he had redug that had been filled in. Isaac doesn't bring any of that to his attention. Why? Because at this point in Isaac's life, he trusts the Lord. He has faith in God and there is now peace between him and Abimelech. Where we first saw confrontation, there is now peace and that peace is a result of Isaac's faith in God. Remember, this is a place we've already seen where two parties make a covenant in Genesis 21. This is Abraham and Abimelech. Same story, Abimelech recognizing God's blessing in Abraham's life. And so what does he say? He said, this is Abraham talking, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for you that I dug this well. Therefore, the place was called Beersheba because they they're both swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. You see the similarity? When Abraham finally begins to fully live in faith in the promise of God, the surrounding peoples recognize and there's peace because of his faith. And in the second generation, the same is true. There is peace because of the faith that Isaac demonstrates in the eyes of the Philistines. You see, and this is, you know, every week we ask the question, so what? And, and, I, and I recognize I've been, we've walked through this almost this whole chapter up until this point. You say these are some interesting points. It's, it's neat, the connection that we see, the kind of this abridged version of Abraham's life playing out in Isaac's life. But what in the world does that have to do with me? What, what, what am I really, how am I supposed to approach this text and, and think about this? And, and what does this have to do with you know, the apple not falling far from the tree. Well, listen to us. We all have a responsibility. We all have people watching us. We all have those that are going to follow in our footsteps. So just as Isaac did with Abraham. So my question for you is this, what am I passing on to the next generation? Abraham passed on numerous things to his son, Isaac, good and bad. And I'm not just talking about your direct generation behind you that is raised in your household. I recognize there are people here who do not have children yet. There are people in this room who will never have children. There are people in this room whose children are long grown and gone, whose grandchildren are long grown. And so you may wonder, well, is, is this just a sermon for parents? Is this just a sermon with people in their house who have, who, you know, who have uh, children that are still moldable? Is this just a sermon for people that work in our kids' ministry, or our student ministry? Absolutely not. That it is the responsibility of all of us to recognize there are people coming behind us, both generationally and spiritually. There are always going to be people younger than us watching us, but there are also going to be people who are spiritually younger than us, who may not actually be younger than us physically. 
but are less mature than us spiritually. So what are we passing on both to the physical generation behind us and to the spiritual generation who is watching? Isaac was not alive for the first hundred years of Abraham's life. He didn't see most of these events take place, but he was told of them. You gotta imagine it was the stories, good and bad, were passed down from one generation to the next. And those things that Isaac inherits from Abraham play out here in Genesis 26, both the good and the bad. So that's my question to you. What, what are you passing on? What am, what am I passing on to the, to the generation after me? Because I'm either passing on good or I'm passing on bad. If we fast forward in the story several hundred years, we get to Exodus 34 which is the second time God is giving the 10 commandments to Moses. The first time ended in disaster. Moses had stayed on the mountain for so long that when he comes down, the people had already converted to being pagans and they had built a statue and began to worship that statue. And Moses breaks those tablets over that statue. So in the second time that God is going to give him the 10 commandments, there's a very specific warning about idolatry. Listen to it. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All right, so this is the second time I'm having to do this, but he's a God of faithfulness and love and he's abounding in mercy and grace, right? But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Sometimes people ask me about that and they're like, does that mean that God holds like my grandchildren accountable for my sin? No, God does not hold children or grandchildren or descendants spiritually accountable for your sins. Your sins are your sins. However, they often suffer the consequences of our sinfulness. And as we see with Isaac and Abraham, learn to sin in the same way we do. This plays out over and over in the life of Israel. One generation will turn from the Lord, then the generation after them, and the one after that, and the one after that, will all suffer the same consequences from, because of the idolatry of their parents and grandparents, and they become idolaters too. They follow false gods in the same way. And God is warning them here of that in Genesis 34. And we should be warned that as well. Do, do you remember? <laughs> I've hesitated to use this. When I was growing up as a kid in the 80s, um, they, they would run these commercials about um, drugs. I think the most famous one was this is your brain on drugs. You know, like this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. You remember that? One? That wasn't my favorite one though. My favorite one was the dad comes in the, in the boy's room and the kid's like using drugs or something, you know? Like, I don't know. It always seemed kind of wonky, but that's what was happening. And the dad was like, where did you learn how to do that? And the boy says, I learned it by watching you, okay? Do you remember that? I remember that one. I always thought that was so strange. And then I had kids. <laughs> like, man, they, they learn everything that I do. <laughs> you know, they're watching everything that we do. Look. You, you're, the generations after you, whether they're your children or their spiritual children, grandchildren, whoever they are, they're watching you. They're learning from you. They're often going to sin in the same way that you do. 
but we also have a positive encouragement from Scripture. This isn't just about don't sin in front of them, right? There's a positive encouragement about how we pass on the faith, just as Abraham does to Isaac. In Deuteronomy 6, we read, oh, hear, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hands and they shall be a frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates." God wasn't establishing here in Deuteronomy 6 some kind of rote, repetitious thing we were supposed to do about writing Bible verses in certain places. It's about living out the love that we have for the Lord in front of people who are watching us. Listen, our goal isn't just for them to be neutral, meaning I don't want to sin in front of them because I don't want them to follow in that. I just want them to be neutral. Well, our goal isn't to get them to be neutral. Our goal is to get them to love the Lord. So, so what are you doing to demonstrate love for the Lord and faith in the Lord and trust in the Lord to watching eyes? Isaac watched Abraham and followed in both the good and the bad and our children and grandchildren and spiritual children and the Lord in our church are watching us. And they're either going to follow in our sin and temptation or they are going to follow in blessing and faith. Now know this, just as God did not hold children spiritually responsible for the sins of their, adult, of their parents. Parents can't have faith for their kids. You can't have faith for your grandkids. You can't have faith for your children's Sunday school class. You, you can't have faith for someone else. And no one can have faith for you. If you're relying on grandma's faith or mama's faith or daddy's faith, you, you're, you're missing the boat. You see, they pass sin to you. And that sin that passed down to you is activated in your life and you are fully held responsible for it. But no one in this world can be righteous for you. Listen to Romans 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I can't be righteous for you, mama, daddy, grandparents. None of these people can, but Jesus did. Jesus was perfectly righteous in your place. And just as Abraham and then his son Isaac believed God that he would fulfill his promise and it was credited to them as righteousness, our faith in Jesus is credited to us as righteousness as well. And it is the only way that we may be made righteous. So while yes, this is a challenge today for those who have generations coming behind them to watch how they are living and to make sure that we're passing on faith and trust in the Lord and the blessing of following him in faith, know this, all you can do is point the way. You can't have faith for them. You can't have righteousness for them, but you can point them to Jesus and if they come to faith in him, then the one who did live a righteous life for them, because you never could, and I never could, but Jesus did. So would you have faith in that today? If you've banked on someone else's righteousness and, and said, well, I'm a Christian because my parents were a Christian and their parents were a Christian. No, that doesn't make you a Christian. But believing in Jesus, coming to him in faith today does. So would you trust in that?
believe in that. And for the church, let us all examine our hearts and say, what am I demonstrating? What am I showing that's important to people watching me as we pass on the faith from one generation to the next? Let's pray together. God, help us, we pray, to be believers that recognize that these watching eyes are important and that we're bringing people along in the faith and probably far more people than we realize because it's not just the ones who live in our house or at one point lived in our house, but there are others, many others, who we need to demonstrate what is truly important in this world to. So let us be those who pass on faith and hope in Jesus alone. I pray for the one maybe who hears this today and they've always, they've just always thought, well, mama's faith was good enough to get me into. Would you help them see that it's not, but that the righteousness of Jesus is available for them through faith alone. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.